Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. That is Psalm 127 verses 3 and 4. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining me today for the second episode in our series on FASD, ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and Complex Trauma with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. This series covers topics that are vital for all foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers. And I know you will learn a ton of invaluable information. I recommend you grab a notebook as you listen to each episode in this series because Dr. Jared Brown will be bringing us a ton of excellent information. My notebook is already filling up after our first episode last week. If you don't have one handy while you're listening to this episode, go ahead and hit the pause button. You can run and grab a notebook and uh, hit uh, play again, uh, or you can just listen through and listen again a second time with the notebook handy. Uh, Trust me, either way, you're going to want to make sure you're taking some great notes here because there's so much to learn. Regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox on Mondays. Uh, This series with Dr. Brown are bonus episodes. They will be dropping on Fridays. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you take a moment to subscribe and even leave a review. It's super simple and it does make a huge impact. When listeners subscribe, it signals to that Uh, mystical algorithm that this show is relevant, it's important, and we want all adoptive foster and kinship caregivers to find this show uh, because we believe it's a vital resource for their parenting journey. So I hope you'll take a moment uh, and subscribe. Also, if you find this show to be an encouragement, let us know. Uh, If you have a comment or a question, maybe you have a a question specific to Dr. Brown, um, topics that you want us to cover, um, we'd love for you to reach out. Uh, You can email me directly. My email address is sandraflackjfo at gmail.com, or you can just go to our ministry website, justicefororphansny.org. Now to our guest, Uh, Jared Brown is a PhD professor, trainer, researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching collegiate courses. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. I have been learning so much from him, and I cannot wait for you to hear from him too. So please welcome back Dr. Jared Brown. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hi, Sandra. How are you doing? Thanks for having me back, and good day, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, it's an honor to have you back on the show. 
I am thrilled that my listeners are going to get to um, tune in and just receive so much important information here and, and hope for this challenging journey that we're all on. Um, most of my listeners are foster and adoptive parents. And I know the topics that we're going to be covering um, are unique to our type of parenting journey. And we often wonder if our children's challenging behaviors are because of FASD, if they've been prenatally exposed to things, is it trauma they experienced in childhood, adverse childhood experiences? I really think it's a combination of all of those things and and probably even more than we even realize. Um, In this series, you're going to help us tackle these topics. Last week, we talked about prenatal trauma, FASD. Um, Today, we're discussing adverse childhood experiences or the acronym ACEs. Um, Jared, would you define what is an adverse childhood experience? What is the definition of that? Yeah, you bet. So think of it as traumatic experiences occurring before the age of 18. Now, a lot of this research really looks at the impact the adverse childhood experiences research has on younger kids, but we have to also take into account the prenatal trauma. So I definitely encourage your audience to check out part one because this really builds on part one. But most of this research really looks at trauma that has happened after the child has been born. There is some research that's looking at the ACEs research within the context of prenatal trauma. And there is some research too, looking at this within the context of intergenerational transmissions of trauma. Or if the birth mother has a very high ACEs score. So adverse childhood experiences can occur in many forms. When you study this topic, it is imperative to understand the research literature related to toxic stress. It is impossible to not have adverse childhood experiences without having toxic stress exposure. Stress in and of itself, not necessarily a bad thing. Toxic stress, always a bad thing. When you think of toxic stress, this is when stress reaches really a dangerous level. It's intense, it's frequent, it's prolonged. It's almost that snowball effect. It can grow and grow and grow. And when a child is dealing with toxic stress exposure, and it could be from being in a home, witnessing parents engaging in domestic violence, it could be that child directly being assaulted. Over time, that toxic stress can negatively impact brain development and body development and actually has a huge impact on cognition. So if anyone hears me talk about cognition throughout this series, Just think of the brain, how we make sense of the world, our thinking, our processing, our problem solving, our decision making. Toxic stress in and of itself can impact learning. It can impact behavior and actually has a a negative impact on immunity and it can cause inflammation in the body and growth deficiencies. So that's just toxic stress. Now, if we start throwing prenatal drugs or alcohol into the equation, again, things get worse. So when we think of this study, the first ACEs study was published in 1998. If you go to the CDC's website, they have a very nice page dedicated to that first study where it really breaks down what was involved in that first study, the participants, the different domains. But what what this study found is basically 
It's called a dose-dependent relationship. That's just a fancy way of saying the more traumas a child had in childhood, there's a greater likelihood he or she grew up and now has more mental health challenges, behavioral, social, physical health challenges compared to people that have no ACEs score or a very low ACEs score. And it really does too look at what kind of interventions were put into place. Obviously a child who's had all this trauma go on and they have no support services interventions, worse outcomes happen. Typically better outcomes happen when there's support and services put into place. And we'll talk a lot about intervention strategies as well. So if we break down the ACEs research a little bit more, Think of it, experiences of abuse that child was exposed to, emotional, physical, sexual. It also could involve household dysfunction. So maybe the child hasn't had abuse directly perpetrated on them, but they're living in a household where one or both caregivers is dealing with a serious untreated mental health issue. One or both caregivers is using drugs or alcohol. One caregiver may be incarcerated. So this research looks at parental incarceration. That is a huge topic. Maybe, Sandra, we could look at if your audience is interested there. That's, that's a really fascinating and disturbing topic. If the child witnessed domestic violence among caregivers, those are just a few factors that this original ACES research looked at. Now, if we look at this, and I, I mentioned this in our first training a little bit, or first module, trauma can have a profound negative impact on child development. So how that child views the world or views themselves, how they start interacting with other kids, if they've dealt with a high level of trauma in childhood, and they haven't had proper supports put into place, there's a higher likelihood that that child may have a difficult time keeping friends, maintaining the friends over the long haul, understanding the topics of intimacy as they get older and try to navigate relationships, how they play with other kids, how they select appropriate toys. They may be more likely to bully other kids too because they don't understand maybe that give and take relationship. Maybe they do have some struggles with perspective taking. Without a doubt, these things can impact that child's problem-solving abilities. And as this child gets into like a K through 12 environment, maybe before that, some of these symptoms were a little masked or they were more difficult to detect on face value. But as that child gets into school and they're around other kids the same age group, these behaviors become very glaring, I think, to other kids who may not be able to make sense of it at that age, but they might start withdrawing from that child or teasing that child. Teachers may start noticing behavioral patterns. Some of these children, unfortunately, in some cases could get labeled as disruptive behavioral kids. They may be medicated, which I'm not saying they shouldn't, but maybe they're medicated for something they don't have. Misdiagnosis could happen, underdiagnosis. As that child gets a little bit older, they don't understand what's going on. Sometimes they may internalize this and start thinking they are defective or dealing with low self-esteem and shame. So those are just a few things when we think of this through a child development lens. So the original ACES study 
looked at 10 different domains of trauma, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, household substance misuse, violent treatment toward the mother if the child witnessed that, parental separation or divorce, household mental health issues, and having a family member incarcerated. So that was the original study, the different domains they looked at from that 1998 study. Since that time, there have been countless studies that have looked at the ACES research within the context of all of those domains, but they've expanded it into all kinds of other subtopics. What happens if the child was growing up in a home where one parent had a gambling problem? There's studies looking at that. They have looked at community violence. Maybe there's no violence or abuse going on in the home, but there's a lot of community violence going on outside the home. Children who come into contact with the foster care system or child protection arena that has absolutely been studied within this context. So spanking has been looked at within this context, peer victimization, bullying, teasing. So those are just a few of the things with that ACES study. And when we look through a trauma lens, a couple things I always just consider when working with anyone or consulting on cases with professionals. Ask yourself, does that person you're working with, or maybe it's a child or whoever, an adult, have they had a long history of not feeling valued or respected? Do they have a long history of feeling rejected? Maybe it's perceived rejection. Maybe they have been rejected by a caregiver and they got thrusted into the child welfare system where there was termination of parental rights. Maybe they never met their birth parents and they're just trying to make sense of that. What is their level of shame like? Do they feel isolated and just very alone and different from the rest of the world? Do they feel ignored? Those are all potential traumas and trauma triggers for some individuals. Sandra, I'll stop for a minute. Um, any thoughts or questions on some of those topics? Wow. So much, so much. I'm trying to take notes as fast as I can. Like I told our listeners, get a notebook. Could, could you slowly give us the breakdown again on the 10 domains? Because I want to make sure that we all catch them. So there was physical abuse. Yeah, looking at the aspects of abuse. So sexual, emotional, physical. Then we want to look at different aspects of neglect physical and emotional neglect, but there's other dimensions of neglect that weren't necessarily studied in this first um, ACEs study, but there's medical neglect. What, I've, what happens if a child broke a bone and caregivers don't bring the, the child to the doctor? There's social neglect. What happens if parents don't allow the child to ever play with other kids or be in any clubs or groups and they just refuse that that there's academic neglect um, not allowing that child in some cases maybe going to school or giving them access to appropriate education so there's there's different levels of neglect and then what was going on in the household in terms of substance misuse or alcohol problems serious mental health problems going on in that household was that that household going through like a separation or like some sort of high conflict divorce where the, the child is in their room 
the child can overhear the parents yelling and screaming at each other, but the child necessarily isn't having that directed at them per se, but the child clearly feels it and hears all of this commotion and chaos. And then parental incarceration. It typically looked at the the father, but again, we we need to consider in some cases, the mother could be incarcerated. So, or maybe it's a multi-generational household that didn't necessarily look at that, but other studies have. What happens if the child is really, really close to grandma and grandpa and one of them deceases or one of them is incarcerated or something like that going on as well. But there's all, there's all kinds of different pre-birth challenges that we want to take into account too that can exacerbate that. And that's why I really think listening to part one will help clarify some of those pre-birth household challenges that we, we dug into as well. Yeah, because these are really after after the child is born, um, the different things that could be going on in their household or environment. And I just right away have been thinking about four of my children were um, adopted internationally, all had spent time in the orphanage system uh, in Eastern Europe. And the younger two went from, you know, they were born in a hospital and immediately moved over to an orphanage. Um, So there was a lot of neglect there, a lot of physical neglect, emotional uh, neglect, medical neglect, because I know I have kids that just did not have, um, you know, ear infections treated, for example, and they have, it seems like they have a very high, most of my kids adopted internationally have a very high pain tolerance, Um, but I always have suspected it's because when no one comes to meet your need, when you cry, you stop crying and asking for help because nobody is going to meet that need or make the pain go away. You just sort of start living with it. Um, Cause we have one who had chronic ear infections. And by the time I, we adopted him and, and, and discovered all of the damage done to his ears. Um, and then another one that just, Um, didn't ever tell us if he had an ear infection or even a toothache because he was just used to living with pain, Um, you know, things like that we were noticing. So it just seems, um, you know, there was also social neglect, academic neglect, like so many of those things um, that you listed would definitely describe kids that were, came out of an orphanage situation. So folks who have adopted children internationally, as well as kids in the foster care system. So many of of those things that you're describing, you know, sound like the history of our kids. Um, So this trauma is such a big part of this. Um, So this topic is definitely relevant to um, the children that we're parenting. you know, what else can you, can you chime in on that? Like, are we seeing, you know, would you say that primarily kids who've come through adoption or foster care uh, are being raised by a relative because whatever, you know, is going on with the parents, drug addiction, maybe incarceration, maybe um, all of these children uh, basically have an ACE. Yes. I would agree. There's some level of trauma in my opinion. If you're a human being, it's near impossible not to have had a trauma happen to you directly or indirectly. COVID-19 is a collective trauma 
And I've done several trainings the last few years on different aspects of COVID-related stressors. There's actually several studies that have coming out showing that in the era of COVID-19, there some researchers are calling that an ACEs in and of itself. So again, take that into account. COVID could be an amplifier for a lot of things, more poverty, more domestic violence, higher incidence of drug and alcohol use, mental health problems, sleep issues, an online addiction, the list goes on. So I don't want to scare your audience. This is what the research says, but I think this more leans to if the person doesn't have any support services or interventions in place. Adverse childhood experiences really contribute to higher rates of disease, illness, disability, and disorders throughout the lifespan. And it can significantly lessen one's life. People die many years sooner with very high ACEs scores. Why might that be the case? Because there is some evidence to point to the fact that high levels of trauma in childhood could be a factor for increases in obesity in adulthood, poor eating habits, poor sleeping habits, risk-taking behaviors. You mentioned the pain intolerance. There's actually some evidence to support the fact that people with high ACEs scores may have a higher broken bone history throughout their life, more likely to take prescription medications at some point in their life, higher incidence of depression, heart disease, cancer, chronic lung issues, sexually transmitted diseases, higher incidence of homelessness, prostitution, criminal justice involvement, unemployment, the list goes on. Again, we've all had trauma. I've had trauma. Everybody I know has had trauma. I'm not talking about like a one or two time thing. But if you are working with someone that's had extensive trauma throughout their life and they never had anyone in their corner helping them, they've never gone to a therapist, they've never talked to a medical doctor, all of those things, obviously, all of those things can contribute to more poor health outcomes. And that's why I talked about toxic stress. And I believe in our first episode, I mentioned the topic of allostatic load briefly. What happens is if someone has all of these stressors going on, they're not sleeping well, they're just eating poorly, their body's chronically inflamed, that can contribute to allostatic load, which is basically wear and tear on the body. And that can contribute to premature aging, and it just can make us look older, more haggard. And then all of these things can disrupt or damage the HPA access, which we also spoke about briefly. I believe we're doing a whole module on that at some point, if I remember right. But HPA access dysfunction, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal access dysfunction is linked to so many different problems in our body. And the HPA access is really that regulator of stress hormones. It's part of our endocrine system. If that's off, that can just wreak havoc and contribute to so many different issues. And then again, I mentioned that topic of intergenerational transmissions of trauma. We need to take into account what happened with mom or dad or grandma and grandpa, great grandma and grandpa. What was going on with them as well? There, there's some things we need to take into account. And there's actually, interestingly too, there's some studies that have looked at the impact that racism 
or discrimination or oppression and poverty and homelessness can have too. And these are all amplifiers and those are traumas we need to take into account. There's actually some studies that have looked at this too within the context of prenatal trauma. If mother was pregnant and dealing with high levels of discrimination or oppression or marginalization or minimization or racism, those experiences are very traumatic and toxic, which then can negatively impact that child in utero. A big thing that this research points to the fact too that I think some people probably can relate to is the fact that when someone is dealing with a high ACEs score, there's a higher likelihood that that individual may be dealing with some self-regulation deficits, self-control, or higher levels of impulsivity, which I've seen it kind of trickle down as that person gets older. And this is different with everyone, of course. But if someone has high levels of impulsivity and has a hard time pausing and putting on the brakes and thinking through their actions, what is their history of engaging in like harmful or dangerous behaviors that put them at risk or other people? It could be like dangerous social situations, dangerous sexual behaviors, driving behaviors. Maybe it's risky financial decision-making as that person gets older. As that person gets older now, are they starting to use drugs or alcohol? Is there a head injury history on top of all of this as well? And all of these factors, if gone unchecked, can really have a negative impact on that person's overall health and wellness. And then as you get older, I'm sure some of your audience is probably familiar with the topic of adaptive functioning. Adaptive functioning is how we manage our day-to-day -day life, independent living skills, social responsibility. I do a lot of consulting on the topic of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and autism. And sometimes what happens, the child grew up in a highly structured home. When they graduate from high school, those structures aren't there as much. So these problems sometimes worsen. Because prior to that, they were somewhat masked because everyone was helping the individual. There was so much predictability structure. We really got to be aware, too. How does that person handle change, uncertainty, lack of structure? If they really struggle with that and it impacts their time management, their ability to hold a job, showing up for appointments on time, managing their money, cleaning, personal hygiene, those are all adaptive functioning skills that can really contribute to increases in like stress for that person as they get older. Any thoughts on that, Sandra? Uh, yes, my head is just like spinning with all kinds of thoughts. Um, a couple of things. One would be, um, Jared, what about medical doctors, pediatricians, you know, we're taking our kids to these doctors and do they have any understanding of, um, you know, the, the advanced adverse childhood experiences and, you know, what we may be bringing them in to see the pediatrician for because they're having other chronic health issues, other things going on. Do medical doctors and pediatricians, do they get it? Do they get that connection? Some. Many, I don't think, do not. But again, I don't 
I don't know all pediatricians, of course, but there's more and more research that's out there geared toward the medical field. But the research really points to the fact that still many healthcare providers truly lack a very detailed understanding of the interconnectedness between what I'm talking about today and in physical health. I'm a big fan of holistic health, holistic wellness, like functional kinds of approaches, whole body approaches, and staying curious, digging deeper. And usually there's multiple things going on. And hopefully the medical community moves in that arena. I gave a training recently on the topic of psychoneuroimmunology. That might be something for your audience just to be aware of that term. It's basically a mind-body approach and looking at our thinking, our stress, our gut, our sleep, and how it's all interconnected with our just immune system. And I think looking at it from a whole body perspective, digging deeper, staying curious is so important. Again, any helping profession This topic is so applicable because if you're working in healthcare, if you're in the mental health arena, child welfare, criminal justice, whatever it is, without a doubt, you're coming into contact with clients and families impacted by trauma directly or indirectly all the time. So if we can learn about this, I think we're we're in a much better position to help people understand human behavior. And in some cases, it can help us better understand ourselves, which then can maybe create more avenues for healing, or it could help someone who's dealing with a lot of shame that's always thought there was something wrong with them to really look at it rather than what's wrong with me, what happened to me, and be more curious Then they can make more informed choices that can help improve their overall health and well-being. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I'm seeing that, and I'm sure many of our listeners also, because I, I have, you know, a couple of kids who have uh, fetal alcohol syndrome uh, diagnosed, and they came from, uh, you know, so they had that prenatal trauma, and then they were in orphanages, and where they experienced a lot of the neglect and lack of nurture, lack of nutrition, and just all of those things, didn't know how to play with toys when we first brought them home, Um, just so many things. And then, um, you know, seeing where I've had to kind of educate the special education teachers, the pediatrician, uh, where there just seems to be that not everybody understands or seems like hardly anybody understands um, FASD. Uh, and then there's all of these, all of the trauma, right. That they have experienced and just feeling like nobody really understands. Nobody's really connecting the dots, so to speak. Um, and then here I am as a parent advocating for my kiddo, knowing that all these things are linked somehow, but feeling like nobody's really hearing me. Nobody gets that um, can, can just be very frustrating uh, and challenging. And then like when you were talking about adaptive function, um, independent living skills, and our kids getting a lot of structure either at school and or at home, but then transition out into the real world. Like I have, I have a, a son who's going to be 19. He is working. Um, he has great strengths and skills at work in a lot of areas, but yet lacks, you know, can't manage money, 
comes home after working and has to take a very long nap um, and doesn't make those connections between, you know, he, he just makes very poor um, food choices, very poor drinks, a lot of, it consumes a lot of sugar in the form of sugary beverages. Um, and just, you know, I'm 19, I can eat and drink whatever I want kind of thing, but yet I know there's a lot of that dismaturity going on. So on a lot of levels, we're not 19, we're like 10, you know, so he's got the diet of a 10 year old and like without the supervision of a parent. <laughs> So there's just all of these things coming into play all the time. And how do we as parents sort through, um, you know, maybe that just leads us to my next question about interventions and strategies that we can um, implement that will help our kids, because it seems like it's not just one thing, right? We can't just say, oh, it's just this, or it's just that. It seems like there's layers of things because our kids have experienced layers of trauma, prenatally, childhood. Um, so let, let's, let's talk about that. Give us some uh, interventions, some strategies. What can we do to help our kids who've experienced uh, adverse childhood experiences and now we're trying to parent them and help them um, what can we do to help them? Before I go right to that, one, uh, one other thing I want to mention when we think about that is something called distorted cognitive schema, which can happen from a lot of trauma. So that individual's dealt with a lot of trauma in life, and now they have something called distorted cognitive schema, which is basically a distorted thinking pattern, or it's an unhelpful kind of thinking style where they might perceive reality incorrectly or they have all or nothing thinking. So they have very rigid black and white thinking. They can't generalize things that well. Maybe they have a, they have a really difficult time seeing the forest through the trees or they struggle with novel situations. And that can trickle down into that person coming off as very rigid or they catastrophize Yes. Or they never think of the future. They're always thinking in the moment. And that is not really a good thing. Now, mindfulness meditation in the moment, that's good. If someone never thinks of the future, how are they going to save money? How are they going to create a foundation and build on and create building blocks every single day? And they may deal with, when they're dealing with this, they may deal with excessive self-blame or blaming of others. And they have a real hard time looking inward and correcting mistakes and having good self-awareness. And then they have a tendency to discount the positives because maybe you as a caregiver can clearly see they're doing a lot of positive things, but that person may discount the positives. So that is something to be aware of when we're thinking of just interventions and a very high percentage of these individuals with high trauma histories are going to have some problems with attachment on some level, disorganized attachment, insecure attachment patterns. Maybe it's anxious attachment patterns. Maybe it's avoidant types of styles. The more you can learn about attachment theory and working with providers who really understand attachment and helping foster attachment are going to be a very good thing. A very high percentage of people with extensive trauma histories also deal with sleep-related disturbances and daytime fatigue. And you kind of mentioned it too, Sandra, where 
I've seen this too, where someone has a job and they're dealing with these issues, their mental reserves go down quickly. So after work, they come home and they, they have to nap for hours at a time. Finding a, a sleep specialist, a sleep coach, ruling out sleep problems, anything you can do to enhance sleep health, those are a few basic interventions. But if we get deep into the weeds with interventions, staying calm is very important. Staying regulated, parental self-regulation, easier said than done. I come at this from a, a, a professional lens. I commend all caregivers. It's, it's got to be hard on absolutely self-care. Take care of yourselves. Find support groups. Go for walks. Do whatever that's going to help. So staying calm, patient, staying kind, staying regulated, being consistent. I think being specific too. We know a lot of these individuals may deal with some language problems or some abstract reasoning and just multi-step instructions can be challenging. Using slang words could be very confusing. Keeping it concrete, keeping it specific, making things visual practicing it not just at home practicing it at the grocery store at church at school on the playground helping them generalize the skill they learned at home or in a therapy office or wherever and helping them learn how to apply it to multiple settings avoid judgment i think that is very important never use shame-based approaches if you're seeing behaviors that seem strange or don't add up stay curious dig deeper could that behavior that that person is doing, are they communicating something? Maybe they don't even know what they're trying to communicate, but really stay curious. Utilize developmental, emotional, and socially appropriate approaches because also often the individual does not function at their chronological age. So if they're 18, do they have a brain of a 14-year-old? a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old. I don't know that, but you would have to kind of work with people and really make sure that they understand the vocabulary you're using. If they're going to therapy, making sure the therapist uses approaches that match their emotional age. If they're in group treatment and they're in there with a bunch of 18-year-olds and they're the only one in there that has a brain of a 10-year-old, you can about imagine how successful that's going to be for them. It's going to be very problematic. And then we talk about the topics of confabulation and gullibility and suggestibility, those can be very, very challenging. I have several other um, strategies I'd love to share today, if possible, Sandra, but I wanted to see if you had any thoughts or comments on those. Yeah, I, I'm very interested in, you mentioned the distorted cognitive schema. You mentioned yes. that. And I felt like, oh, this is describing exactly <laughs> what's going on at my house. Um you know, I, I have one, like I said, with, with FAS and early childhood trauma um, from being in an orphanage. And he's got that all or nothing thinking pattern. It's like little things that should be little, you know, inconveniences. He turns into big mountains, like very big deals. And like, I know I mentioned to you, our internet had gone out while we were up at our camp. Um, and so we had a few days without internet, which I'm the one, right. Who needs internet to work. 
So if anybody should have been inconvenienced, it would have been me. And I've learned over the years, like you said, self-regulation. So I stay calm. I don't stress out about it because I know that's not going to fix the problem. It will only trigger my son into having a higher level of stress over something he doesn't even need to be stressed out about. And he's got very limited access to the internet. So it's not like he's dependent on it. Um, we're very careful with how much screen time he gets, but um, just the fact that the internet went out, he was like, now, now I'm going to have to end my life or my life is over or like, just, you know, just Jesus take me now. Kind of like these were words coming out of his mouth because the internet was down. And like I said, he barely uses it for anything. Um, I use it. And I was like, well, I'm just, you know, I'll just, it's fine. I don't have to, you know, I'll just go to town and send people quick messages, letting them know I'm off the grid for a few days. Um, but is that, is that, um, you know, the things he was saying is, would that be an example of what your, what, what a distorted cognitive schema is? It would be a portion of that. It sounds like it also could be lacking that cause and effect, the abstract reasoning where maybe in his mind, he thought the internet is down and that means forever. And <laughs> the the, his brain away. may have a hard time going to tomorrow and realizing me tomorrow could be a, a totally new day. It could be partially related to problems with executive functioning by self-control issues and not being able to pause and reflect and think through what I, what he just said. The number one stressor, at least of all the cases I've been consulting on in the last several years related to like neurodevelopmental disorders is related to the internet. It's like the number one family issue that comes up almost every time when people reach out to me. And these are people reaching out like all over the world. So this isn't exclusive just to United States. It's like, to me, it's crazy making the internet is such a wonderful thing, but it's a double-edged sword. It creates so much tension, so much confusion. Sometimes it's created violent tendencies and reactions and the person's acted out violently and actually assaulted someone in their household. So it, that's a huge, huge topic. I've done, uh, I think, two or three different podcasts with different groups on that. And I believe part of this series, we're doing something on trauma and screen time misuse too. So we can definitely talk about tips, strategies, solutions around that as well. Yeah, I believe, I believe episode four of this series is going to be devoted to screen time. But with my son, it's so, so that was an example involving the internet, but it could be other things like, um, you know, I've heard him say, you know, it, any kind of little like um, we're out of milk or um, the dog is barking or whatever kind of what would normally be like a minor irritant, right? you know, his response is not equivalent to that. It's more like, you know, my life is over. I'm going to blow my head off. Uh, the dog will need to be put down. Like just, you know, if you die, he'll, he said to the dog before, you know, he'll get upset because we have a dog that's, she's not technically trained as a therapy dog, but she's a, a, like a support, you know, animal for him. Um, but if she's 
um, you know, runs into the woods because we live in a wooded area, um, you know, he'll get upset and she'll come back and he'll be like, this is why she needs to be on the leash because if she dies, I die. Like, it's just, there's no in the middle. It's always like this extreme, you know, everything's going to end in death kind of response. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, have these conversations with him that like, it's not acceptable for you to say these things, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's not like he's suicidal or, you know, from to the best of my, you know, as, knowing him as well as I do. And to the best of my understanding, it's not like he's intending to harm himself or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's, it's the script that he uses. It's it, it, like, he goes from zero to a hundred and there's nothing in between when responding to any kind of stress. Working with a counselor through that attachment and trauma lens, and maybe it's practicing some deep breathing or mindfulness, or it's like a, a gratitude journal, or focusing on some other like positive psychological traits, helping the person develop more gratitude or optimism, really honing in on teaching self-control. Mm-hmm. But also self-compassion. That's a whole other area to look at it, teaching self-compassion skills really promoting self-esteem dynamics and improving self-efficacy. So helping them have more internal locus of control because it sounds like the example you're giving really relates to external locus of control. My mood is dependent on what happens in the outside world. Internal locus of control gives people more control over their reactions to things that might not go their way. And that's partially rooted in building more resilience. And we build resilience through a whole bunch of things. I can share a few strategies, but if you go deep into the weeds with the ACES research and what that research says about maybe some therapies to use, and this isn't necessarily specific for like a child diagnosed with FASD or something like that, but finding a qualified specialist, looking at like trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy. That is something to look into. Play therapy has been discussed frequently in this literature. Mindfulness-based kind of therapies, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Expressive writing has been shown to be a possible intervention. The very nature of going to a therapist who understands these topics can be very, very helpful. Animal-based interventions and therapies. Lots of good research on that. Music-based art-based approach, all of those that kind of fall into the, maybe the expressive kind of domain, just helping that person learn how to express their emotions. Maybe it's working with someone who can set up an individualized nutrition plan or an exercise plan, obviously consulting with your healthcare providers before doing that. But anything we can do to, I think, promote positive coping skills. So helping the person when they become emotionally dysregulated and they go to that all or nothing thinking or zero to 60 in a second or emotional liability, like it feels like you're on a roller coaster ride with that person and it's like walking on eggshells, helping them have more emotional expressiveness in a healthy way. Teaching them it's okay to feel angry, sad, hurt, upset, but how do you express that? Helping them learn how to express it, helping them 
understand the connections between their body sensations and they're starting to feel all amped up inside and then how to express that without just flying off the handle or yelling, screaming, storming away or breaking something or saying I'm going to hurt myself or someone else. The topic of alexithymia comes to mind when we talk about these things too. Alexithymia is kind of an emotional competency deficit. I believe I did uh, an um, alexithymia recording on Robbie's FASD podcast. People want to check that out, but more than happy to talk a little bit about that too. But alexithymia is where that person really has a hard time naming labeling, understanding, processing their own emotions. So all this negativity goes into their body and then it comes out sideways. It can come out as headaches, stomach pain. It can come out as anger. It can come out as violence, aggression. It can come out as the person self-medicating with drugs, alcohol, sugar. It's research on all these things. So helping them regulate their emotions behavioral emotions, cognitive components of this, focusing on brain-based training maybe, focusing on relationship skills building in the social domain, but also social problem solving. Again, how do we solve these problems? Most problems can be solved. Maybe not right in this moment, but again, helping them realize if we just put the brakes on, slow down, let's pull over, let's take some deep breaths, We'll come back to in a few minutes. It's going to be okay. And through a trauma lens, using attunement, empathy, validation, compassion, reassurance to that individual are, are kind of what's recommended. Do you want me to share just a few like self-regulation strategies or some resilience-based approaches or both? Or? Yes, yes, please. Anything you can equip us with, because so many of what, so much of what you're talking about, as far as the um, the deficits and the stresses and and um, you know the various ACEs, um, I think that so many of us, you know, our kids are struggling with these things. We as parents are struggling with these things. I think you're describing many of the children in my house. Um, so what do we do? What are the different interventions? What are the different things that we can do? Um, that we can just even today start applying that can can help. We know there's no one magic pill or quick fix, but what are the things you know that we can be doing um, to help our kids? Seek to learn more, read, but make sure you do this in conjunction with a qualified professional who understands these topics, and maybe it's part of a multidisciplinary team finding a skills worker, maybe it's a coach or something, executive functioning coach. Some of these things, what I have found helpful, learning about executive function, the CEO of the brain, the boss of the brain, and under that umbrella, self-regulation, inhibition do fall under there. So helping people pause, reflect, slow down can make a world of difference. We have prison systems built in this country for people that have self-control issues. I mean, People with chronic long-term offending, people with chronic issues in just managing their day-to-day -day affairs, people with addictive tendencies, lots of problems are rooted in self-regulation deficits. It's not the only factor, but helping people slow down and realize that you may not feel well right now, 
but it's like a passing storm. That storm is going to go away and you're going to feel better if you just sit with that uncomfortableness, helping them model to them too, that you know what? Sometimes we don't feel good in our bodies. That's okay. That's normal. Teaching them some distress tolerance, working with a professional again that can teach some of those things. Trauma-informed approaches, attachment-informed, getting sleep under control, staying curious, giving more frequent breaks, not just talking about it with the individual, but role-playing, coaching, modeling, teaching. Maybe it's using games. Maybe it's using handouts, worksheets. Maybe it's getting into some sort of skills group. Maybe it's having an in-home counselor, therapist, a coach coming in and teaching these skills, working with the whole family, really promoting self-care, getting some predictable routines and structures and expectations around really everything, sleep time, meal time, entertainment time, homework time, just getting predictability, I think can be very, very helpful. But allowing plenty of time for that person to process this information and practice it because sometimes the brains of some of these individuals may need a little extra time to take in that information and process it. So not bombarding them with tons and tons of things like I am right now, bombarding everyone with all of this information. So that can overwhelm the working memory and that in and of itself could contribute to self-regulation issues or some sensory processing issues. But again, stressing before you implement these things, talk to your healthcare provider, do it in conjunction with a qualified professional, I think are going to be very, very helpful. Yeah. I'm wondering, one thing that I keep thinking is, you know, we have, we have pediatricians and, and doctors here, but depending on where you live in the country, um, how do we know where to find the professionals? Like I know you mentioned, um, you know, the executive function coach, where would we find somebody like that? There are, I, I'm not going to recommend any one person, but there are lots of resources right. online. You can find just doing Google searches for executive functioning coach. A lot of these things can be done via telehealth. There's actually tons of research that talks about the benefits of doing telehealth for a lot of these things through the screen or even phone-based interventions. Those can be very helpful. And talking to your healthcare provider, maybe in your local community, that healthcare provider, if, if they approve, can make the referral to a sleep study if there's indication there's a sleep problem. Or maybe the person would benefit from consulting with a nutritionist to rule out any dietary deficiencies. Maybe there's some food sensitivities going on. Maybe some people are eating all the right things on paper, but maybe they're allergic to just spinach, for example, just naming one thing of any of all these things to take into account. But it's not, I really want to stress too, that none of this is medical advice. So talk to your healthcare professional before implementing this, but some basic tips too, like within that household, getting a handle on screen time use. That's a tough thing. Again, the very nature of being glued to the screen all the time can increase anxiety, inflammation, eye strain, circulation issues, just the very nature of putting some boundaries and fences around cutting down on the screen particularly in the evening hours, 
Because the last thing we want to do is be glued to that screen up until bedtime because our eyes are looking at that bright screen. And now that bright screen's telling our brain, hey, stay up longer, produce less melatonin. And it tricks our brain into thinking, hey, it's morning. And now maybe we're watching some anxiety provoking show or something. Now we're producing more cortisol in our blood. And at night, higher levels of cortisol, not a good thing. We probably won't be able to get good sleep. Or if we do fall asleep, a lot of times I hear people wake up frequently. They're not getting that deep, restful sleep. This is just my own opinion. Sleep is number one to health. That's the bedrock to build on for health. And then everything else builds on that diet, exercise, nutrition, all those things. Because we've all been sleep deprived here and there. But what happens if someone's been sleep deprived for years and years and years? That level of sleep deprivation can have profound impacts on their digestive health, on their brain health, on their growth, immunity, on their social skills. So really understanding the topic of sleep is so important when we especially talk about trauma because sleep problems are really universal among people with extensive untreated trauma histories. It's not going to be a hundred percent, but the overwhelming majority probably are dealing with some level of sleep. What's one of the best things we can do to start building our resilience and our ability to bounce back from tough stuff, improve sleep. Yeah. Wow. There's just so much here to unpack. And I know, um, you know, for anyone who, and I, and I think, Way back in my early days of first parenting children, um, our first child that came into our home back in 1999, she was a relative. Um, her mom had died, no dad in the picture, um, being raised by um, a mentally unwell grandmother. Um, and then she, at age eight, she came to live with us. And I just, I knew nothing about trauma knew nothing about ACEs, had, didn't have adoption or foster care or any of that on my radar. Hadn't read a single book. None of that, you know, seemed to be applicable. I, I wasn't, I just figured, well, she needs a family. We're a family. I have other children. I'm a stay at home mom. Obviously we're the best place for her. So she'll come to live with us and we'll all live happily ever after. And it really wasn't as easy as all of that because we were encountering behaviors and all kinds of challenging things all along. And in the end, um, you know, I just kept thinking she's disobedient, she's difficult, she's defiant, she's like all of these things. And it wasn't until eventually we, when we adopted internationally and I started reading books about attachment and I started reading books about trauma and I started getting some trauma training that my mind went back to, oh my goodness, you know, our daughter, because we eventually adopted her, but she came in, came to live with us when she was eight. We had no idea that all of the things that she had been through, the impact that it really had on her development, on her emotional state, on just everything about her. So I just, you know, for our listeners who are either maybe just considering adoption or foster care, or you're raising a relative's child, or you have adopted and you just you just thought it was going to be like this, you know, happily ever after experience, and then everything is chaos. Um, everything we're talking about in this series applies because all of this, the adverse childhood experiences, affects every part of our kids. 
It absolutely does. It, a whole body, it can impact the entire body. Yeah. And I see that. I see that. And so many of the different things, you know, in, you know, I've got one kid that just wants to consume sugar all the time. Um, you know, another one that does have some sleep issues and, you know, there's like different layers and just multiple different things. So there's so much going on and I, and I just appreciate just all of the different ways that you're giving us, um, you know, just some strategies to help not only our kids, but to help us as parents. Cause I figured, you know, I, I learned early on that self-regulation, I need to regulate myself in each situation. If not, it's just a hundred times worse. Um, if I'm not self-regulated, uh, that, that's a big one. And the self-care that comes in for the parents, because it's, we're living constantly. I'm like constantly on with, um, you know, working with my son all the time and just the millions of different questions and his responses to every little thing all throughout the day. Um, there's just always something. And, you know, I've even learned to tell him I, I need a brain break because he'll get, you know, perseverating on something. And like, we're just, he can't get off of this one thing. And no matter what we do or how we try to change the subject, it goes back to that one thing. And you're kind of like, I'm fried, um, you know, but we have to kind of navigate through that. So, you know, a lot of times we just need the daily, like the little things we can, we can glom onto to help us navigate, you know, all of the ups and downs throughout every day. Um, so I appreciate all of, all of the things that you're giving us as interventions to help us parent our kids. Um, cause we, you know, we want to bring them to levels of healing. Um, and I know there's a million more things we could probably talk about Jared, but as we wrap up today, um, give us some hope. What is your best advice for parents who are, you know, really praying for their kids and trying to help um, we want to help them overcome adverse childhood experiences. So just as we're slogging through the day, um, what is your best advice? What, what can we do? Like, like just maybe the top three things that every parent could, could do just every day to help us help our kids. Find professionals who understand these topics. So working with a multidisciplinary team, because again, it's likely not going to be one professional who can tackle all of these issues or problems. As the parent, staying curious, learning, growing, knowing you're not alone. This is tough stuff and taking care of yourself too. And the one other thing I would say is build resilience in yourselves and model that to your kids. We, we all need resilience. If we are resilient, we are, it's like a force field around us. It's not going to eliminate all problems, but it's really going to help us bounce back a lot easier and handle stress more effectively. And I kind of alluded to a few things that can build resilience, but improving sleep can help. Focus if someone's dealing with self-esteem issues. Focusing on improving one's self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence can improve resilience. Learning how to manage stress more effectively is a critical component of building our resilience. I found, and all the stuff I'm saying too is supported in the research literature, is build gratitude, promote optimism, promote hopeful thinking. These are all rooted in 
resilience, engaging in appropriate humor. Humor is a great thing. Modeling what healthy, appropriate, normal humor is can be very, very helpful for that child as they get older. Humor is a critical component of like relationship building and getting along with people and even encouraging and motivating them. Volunteering has been shown to build resilience. So maybe the whole family volunteers together somewhere and they do something as a, a group, a team, a give back or, or gardening has been shown, being around animals, setting boundaries, being proactive, setting realistic goals. These are all things that have been shown to build resilience. So those are the three things that I would recommend. Oh, excellent, excellent advice. Um, this has just been such an informative episode. I mean, the first two, right? My my notebook is just about full and <laughs> we've just done two episodes um, so far in, in, the, in the huge series that we're going to do. And you've provided such a wealth of information today, Dr. Brown. I'm, I'm looking forward to our next uh, uh special in this, the next episode in the special series next week, we're going to be discussing complex and developmental trauma. Um, all of these are such relevant topics for foster adoptive and kinship caregivers. So I just thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brown for being with us and just sharing your expertise and giving us some hope and some strategies and some tools that we can begin to apply. You're welcome. I truly appreciate being able to chat with you today and with your audience and look forward to talking again next week. Oh, I greatly appreciate it. Now, do you do you have, I know you referred to a lot of the literature and a lot of the research. Do you have any links that we could share that, that uh, our listeners could kind of click on to read more, to find out more? I can send you some different readings that are out there. I mean, there's literally thousands of yeah. studies on all these topics that people go to Google Scholar and just type in whatever search term they want. That's a great resource for finding journal articles. If people go to YouTube or just online and type in my name and put in podcasts, I've done numerous podcasts with different organizations on many different facets of things that we're talking about today. And feel free to share my email with your audience too. If, if they have some general questions, I, I won't be able to give like specific advice per se, but I can maybe point them in the right direction. Here's a good book to read, or here's a good link you might want to take a look at. But again, everything I'm saying here is just general education. Talk to your healthcare provider before implementing anything. Such wonderful advice. Thank you so much for sharing with our listeners today and, and uh, for being for helping us bring this series on uh, trauma and early childhood experiences, um, adverse childhood experiences, I should say, FASD, all of it, um, just such a wealth of information that can benefit our families. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Well, now I need another notebook. This is such an informative series. I'm so excited about it. My head is spinning and I'm sure yours is too. So um, I'm going to have to go back and re-listen, even though I, you know, conducted the interview and I took so many notes, I can't even read half of my handwriting. So I, I'm going to be going back and listening to these episodes over again, just so I can pick up the things I might've missed. Um, but I encourage you to do that as well. 
um, because there's such great information that we can learn from. Um, I'm just so appreciative of uh, Dr. Jared Brown for bringing us his expertise and just thanking you, our listeners, for joining us for this series. Um, We're going to be talking FASD, adverse childhood experiences, trauma, lots of other topics here. I have a list. Um, We're going to be talking about screen time and the impacts of that. Um, We're going to talk specifically about FASD and adverse childhood experiences, attachment, uh, betrayal, trauma, child maltreatment, um, child. We're going to dive deep. Some of this stuff I know we've touched on, but we're going to dive deeper into the sleep disturbances, um, executive uh, dysfunction, self-regulation deficits, um, intergenerational transmission of trauma, and the HPA axis dysfunction. I, I just found that to be so, so fascinating. Uh, theory of mind and prenatal and early childhood trauma exposure. So much. Um, and it just seems like so many things overlap um, and are so interconnected. Um, and if you are a foster or adoptive or kinship caregiver, this stuff is apl- applicable, right? To this journey that we're on, this stuff has applied to our kids uh, and we need to be understanding it. We need to be informed. We need to stay curious as Dr. Jared says, um, and learn everything we can. So even if you just gl- glom onto one little nugget in all of the stuff that we're talking about in each episode, if you just are, are able to walk away with one little thing, you know, I remember years ago, attending an Empowered to Connect conference. Um, and my kids had already had their FAS diagnosis and, you know, was attending these different trauma-informed uh, things. And I remember Dr. Karen Purvis, the Dr. Karen Purvis, saying um, from the podium, if you have a child who has been prenatally exposed to alcohol, you have a child who essentially has brain damage. And I just remember, I don't think I heard anything else from the rest of that day, but to me, it was like, okay, all right, that's going to change the way I parent because it's not a child who's on purpose, disobedient or difficult or destructive or, you know, any of these things that we're dealing with, it's the brain. And now we have to focus on the brain and learning more about the brain and you know, that was the one thing I walked away from that helped me to have that empathy and compassion in the moment when I'm dealing with my kids' behavior that, you know what, it's the brain, it's their brain, it's not them, it's their brain. And if I can focus on, you know, what their brain needs and filtering everything through, you know, that expectation of if, if, if my child had been in a car accident, God forbid, and had a brain injury that affected how they processed information and how they behaved and affected their mood and affected their behavior. I'm going to take that into consideration when something gets broken or, you know, they do something that they shouldn't have done or whatever the case is. I'm going to take that brain injury into consideration, right? Just like, you know, if an individual is blind and they don't have eyesight, I'm going to set my expectations differently about what they can do and how they learn and how they get to point from point A to point B, right? Because their, you know, their disability with their eyesight is going to affect everything about them. Well, when it comes to FASD and trauma, a lot of times this is 
an invisible disability and knowing about it will help us to parent accordingly. It was a game changer. So again, Dr. Jared Brown is giving us just tons and tons of information to kind of navigate through, to sift through. If you can even glean one nugget of information that will encourage you and help you and give you some direction, you know, maybe it's, okay, I'm going to look into that executive function coach. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And I got executive function stuff going on at my house. There's a coach for that. I didn't even know. Maybe I'm going to go do that Google search and try to find one in my area or an, one that we can access online or ask the counselor that he, you know, my son currently sees, even if that's just my one golden nugget, right? Learning about these things. Maybe it is the diet. Maybe, maybe it is focusing on nutrition, whatever it is, whatever, like, you know, struck a chord with you, glom onto that and let that be your one takeaway um, because it can be overwhelming to have all this information come at you. But these are podcasts, guys. You can re-listen to this episode as many times as you need to, to take the accurate notes that you need to take to give yourself some next steps from what you're hearing. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, you know what? It's okay. I am kind of too. I'm going to listen again, and I'm going to just try to pick up one or two things that I can walk away with and actually pursue and look more deeply into. So I would, I would encourage that you to do that same thing. Um, but thank you for hanging in there. Um, remember our regular episodes of this podcast, the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, they drop in your inbox on Mondays. So be sure to look for those. These bonus episodes with Dr. Jarrett Brown are going to be releasing on Fridays. We're probably going to do about 15, roughly, give or take 15 episodes with Dr. Brown. They'll be just on, released on Friday, so they'll be separate from our, our regular content, but I want you to be able to easily find them. Uh, and if you have a question for me or a question you would like to ask Dr. Brown, um, you can email me. Um, Sandra Flack, JFO at gmail.com. Uh, we'll also put Dr. Brown's email in um, the show notes. He's not going to be able to diagnose your kid or anything, but if you have a question about a topic, something that we've talked about, something that you're wondering, he can provide a little bit more information and point you in the direction of a book or another resource that would be valuable for you. But if you, and if you have a specific question you want me to ask him, on this podcast, please feel free to reach out to me and I'll make sure that we do that. If you enjoyed the show uh, and were encouraged by it, please let us know by subscribing if you haven't subscribed already. And also let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know about this podcast so they can be encouraged and equipped too. It's awesome if you would, when you see our social media, um, every week on our social media, we promote the podcast who our guest is. Um, so you would have to follow um, Justice for Orphans on either Facebook or Instagram, or you could follow me personally. Sandra Flack is my, my page. Um, if, when you see us post uh, about the podcast, if you share it, so that way other, other people that you know in this space would be able to find it, um, I would appreciate that too. Now, September, right around the corner, believe it or not, you know, here goes summer. Uh, but September is International 
FASD Awareness Month, and we've got lots of FASD stuff going on. Uh, JFO is now an FASD United affiliate. That means we are one of two organizations in all of the state of New York to contact for FASD resources, supports, and advocacy. If you live in a different state, um, you can just go to FASDunited.org and you can find out um, who the affiliates are in your state. Also, we offer an FASD 101 training online or in person. Uh, it's a 90-minute training about FASD for parents, for professionals, um, and we would love to bring that to you. I can do it online or in person. Uh, you would go to our website, justicefororphansny.org. Click on training at the top of the page. There's a drop down, and you'll see FASD. Click on that. It'll bring you to all of our FASD stuff, for lack of a better you know, word there, stuff. Um, and I am also in the process of becoming a facilitator of the facets neurobehavioral model. And early in 2023, we're going to begin offering facets workshops, which I can present anywhere from a one hour to an 18 hour, which would be like three hours each week, six week course, um, but a variety of different workshops for professionals and for parents and caregivers um, of individuals with fetal alcohol or neurobehavioral uh, disorders. So um, stay tuned to our website, justicefororphansny.org, if you would like to access any of those trainings. Again, I do them in person, um, also offer them online. And JFO is a platinum sponsor of FASD United's Run FASD, or as we like to say, Run Fast. It's a virtual 5K. You can run, walk, or roll anywhere, anytime during the month of September. And we are also hosting a local 5K here in upstate New York. So to learn more about that, and you can come on out and meet us. Um, I myself will be there. My son, Slava, who I talk about a lot on the show, Rebecca Tulu, um, who is a local um, FASD uh diagnosed uh, adult adoptee who's an advocate. She's the one who came up with the idea for the run FASD a couple of years ago. We're going to meet up locally and anybody who wants to join us can meet us in person and participate on uh, September 9th, which is a Saturday at 930 in the morning in Voorheesville, New York. You can find out more information on our website. You can also go to runfasd.org to register. Um, and also we're going to be promoting it on our social media. So you're going to want to check all of that out. Oh, stick with me. I'm almost done because I have an exciting announcement. Um, I would love for you to join our Hope for the FASD journey virtual support community for parents and caregivers of children and youth diagnosed or just suspected FASD. One of the things Dr. Jared Brown said is surround yourself with a support community, people on the same journey who get it. Don't be isolated. Um, so Natalie Vecchione, who is the host of FASD Hope podcast, and myself are facilitating this virtual community uh, to join the community, 
to learn all about what you get when you join the community, the support groups, the VIP conversations, uh, the weekly devotionals, all of the things that we're going to be offering. Uh, again, you would go to justicefororphansny.org, click at the top of the page training and the drop down box, click FASD, and you'll get all of that information there on our FASD resource page. I encourage you to check out my book, uh, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father, available wherever books are sold, also on my personal uh, website. If you would like a signed copy, sandraflack.com. Um, I'd like to give a big shout out to our uh, some business sponsors who help us at JFO do what we do in serving children and families in crisis. Um, so a big thank you to Tri Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Kuksaki, and Cullman Insurance Agency. These businesses care about children and families in crisis. If your business or church um, or you yourself as an individual or family would like to support what we are doing as well and become a county sponsor, um, you can go to our website to learn more about that as well. Um, be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans, also at Sandra Flack. I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I hope that you were encouraged and you feel better equipped for this journey. I am thrilled to navigate this life with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.